Welcome to Bickering Peaks. With Aiden and Lindsay. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is Bickering Peaks. And we're here today to discuss Eraserhead. Okay. Your favorite <laughs> film. Well, well, no. Let's not let's not say that. Uh, but it is a film that <laughs> we're going to talk about. I quite it is, like it. It is I think, a good film. I think we're going to end up getting some bickering here because um, this has slowly become one of my favorite Lynch films. Um, previously, that spot was held without question by Mulholland Drive. And Eraserhead is up there. I mean, it. the more I watch it, the closer it gets to eclipsing Mulholland Drive. I really love this film. Okay. <laughs> I don't. And you don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I definitely see the, uh, there's there's a lot to like in it. Um, and honestly, I think I would enjoy it more if I didn't have this gut reaction to the baby, which just terrifies the hell out of me. And, and th- we can th- talk about that. The, the reason that this is such a frightening thing. Yeah. For you, for people in for- general. Well, yeah, I think just visually it is too, but yeah, we can get into the psychological aspects yeah. as well. If well, you really we will want. absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's possible to talk about Eraserhead without getting into psychological aspects of Eraserhead and the baby specifically. Yeah, because that's the whole plot of the that, film. That is the whole movie, really. So, uh, um, yeah. So, do, why don't you start us off with a bit of production history? This has a very interesting production history. It does. And so we've been watching this on the uh, most of the films that we have that we're uh, talking about. We're watching on the Criterion releases wherever possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Criterion collection Eraserhead has um, some interviews and stuff beforehand that kind of, you know, David Lynch just talking about his films, which is which is great. I mean, up until the release of the Blu-ray uh, a couple weeks ago, you hadn't really seen much of this on camera. Lynch, you know, giving up so much about his process. But this this kind of oral history of Eraserhead, I think, is worth um, buying the Criterion Collection yeah. for. It's it's interesting because so he started working on this in um, the early 1970s. I think 70, the late he, 1970. Yes, they're early 71. He he had the script or at least the idea. For yeah, and he was he he'd accepted a scholarship at the um, American Film Institute Center for Academic Film Studies, and this is where he he was taking classes, but he was also working on this um, this script after hours or maybe as part of one of his classes but at the time it was called garden back no that was a totally different totally film. different film yes but but, but he, it was yeah. the, it was what uh led him to developing Eraserhead. Exactly. and there were there were conflicts between him and professors and things that he wasn't he didn't feel like he was doing what he what wanted to be doing and i think they recognized in him that he had a, he had talent so they kind of let him have maybe more free reign than they might have otherwise for another student mm-hmm. because he was given access to, uh, he calls it a barn. And that's what it kind of looks like. It's this old 1920s, um, almost like a stable or something, like where horses would have been kept yeah. on the campus for the for the AFI uh, Center for Film, uh, Center for Advanced Film Studies. And he was basically given the whole place to film in. Mm-hmm. And he lived there for a while. And this this process, like, so from 1970, let's say he started, you know, thinking Starting about it, it yeah. 1970, 
1977, which is when the film was released in, in early 1977. For, for those, you know, six and a half years, David Lynch was on working eraser. on yeah. Eraserhead. Um, and and it was, it's such a f- um, infamous production, I think, just because it was so long yeah. that, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool to just think about the gestation of this and mm-hmm. how it was created and how long it took for all of these shots to be planned out. And, you know, days, you could take days on a single shot or you would take weeks on, on a, on a sequence. It's the kind of thing that we, you know, contrasted with, um, the $6 million man that we did two weeks ago where you'd be doing 22 or 25 episodes a year in a season, not even a year in, in like a 10 month or an eight month period, um, to do, Six years on an eighty-minute film yeah. is unprecedented. I don't. I don't know much about the history of filmmaking. If this is the longest film, it's probably not. But no. it, it's you've got to think that it's up there, yeah. right? Well, I mean, Boyhood was whatever, right, of course, sixteen, yeah, that's true. years or something that's like true. that. But but yeah, definitely this is, uh, and it, it shows. I mean, it shows his dedication to the topic and the the aesthetic and the fact that he didn't want to compromise. He might yeah. have been able to film it. In a year, you know, well, we and we know we know that he's film. he's done that, you know, with other films that were backed. Mulholland Drive didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a sprawling six year production. You know, uh, Blue Velvet, Firewalk with Me. Yeah. These are all films that were that were created in that more yeah, typical mold. Yeah, uh, but it's funny you bring up Mulholland Drive because it was actually filmed as a TV series, right, and yes, then when he course. decided it was going to be a film instead, they went back and had to refilm. Yeah, so it's. Yeah. I feel like that's part of this too. Like, sure, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's still uh, a testament here, but I mean, I feel I feel like he's still a student at, mm. at the start of it, at least. Um, by the end, I think he was working a couple different jobs just to make, try and make ends meet, and uh, you know, th- that's how he kind of met a lot of his uh, his the standbys for yeah for future cast, things. Yeah, yeah because that's that's one other thing to mention is that the the stable of Lynch. I guess collaborators, collaborators yeah, let's come starts here mm-hmm. with people like Catherine Coulson, um, Charlotte Nance. Stewart, Jack Nance is in it, obviously. Yeah. Alan Splett, uh, Jack Fisk. Yeah. Uh, Sissy Spacek helped out on this. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these these people that that uh, and who later on became more important. Some of them worked with him on every project or virtually every project yeah. until their death or. Uh, you know, they, this was a, uh, yeah, a stable of collaborators mm-hmm. that started here and that shows his, uh, loyalty and the loyalty that other people had for him, which I think is a pretty big testament to the kind of person that David Lynch is, um, and the people that he surrounds himself with, mm-hmm. but it helps with, uh, a, sh- a film like this where it is a labor of love. So these, these are people who took on multiple roles. They bankrolled it. Um, they would spend hours and hours and hours building sets and and doing props and working, backbreaking labor, doing this, making it work. Um, for a film that is, you know, it it wasn't. It's never going to be a blockbuster. No, and it, no it was kind of panned at the time, right? Like it it didn't. Oh, really? It was considered. It was considered a success because it it made money, but it made money because it eventually made it onto the midnight movie circuit. So it had like three year runs at some theaters where they played it every night or every weekend night at midnight. But I mean, the first day that it premiered at one theater, there were only 25 people 
who came to see it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a weird movie. It is a weird movie. And so it's not it's not going to have that widespread no. mainstream appeal. Yeah. For but an art house movie to make money at all is pretty impressive, yeah, actually. So, yeah. I mean... And it made seven million dollars is what it made domestically. I don't know uh, during what period, but that was considered successful. But I mean, the critics were kind of on the edge about it. They didn't really think it was, you know. Yeah. And I don't blame them. But I mean, like Variety called it a sickening, bad taste exercise. And the New York Times compared it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. no, go ahead. No, the the New York Times compared it to... um, Eraserhead to the Elephant Man because they probably didn't get a chance yeah. to review it until later. Well, so in context of uh, if that those are the only two films you were watching of David Lynch's in 1980, you'd be like, what the hell is Eraserhead? Like the Elephant Man is great. It is normal film. Mm-hmm. Eraserhead looks like a, you know, a nightmare. So, you know, I think, you know, looking at it contextually, there's there's a lot of reason why there are there are a lot of reasons why this wasn't well received by anybody other than the midnight film well, yeah, circuit and exactly, but later his fans. Yeah. Well, that's the thing though. He knew his audience, I think. Yeah. And he, he delivered well, something to them that not only his sense. audience himself. Well, exactly. He was doing he's it for part himself. of that audience. Yeah. Right. And, and he's, he knew that what he had would have struck with somebody. Yeah. I mean, maybe not, maybe he thought it was just him and he's just hoping for the audience, but I feel like he, you know, he was connected to that art world. He was connected to film students. These sure. are the, you know, the film geeks of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but do you think he was creating this movie for them? No, 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 I'm, no I'm sure he's creating it mostly for himself, like 95%. But, but you still want that kind well, of Yeah, and exactly. Acceptance. And I feel like it was it was part of it. Uh, I feel like he had his his uh, finger on a pulse of mm-hmm. artistic uh, creation at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and film being his particular outlet that he's that he's using in this case, um, he he understood what what was possible with an art film. Uh, better than maybe most others. I, I'm well, not explaining that very well, but basically he was he was a good artist. <laughs> so he was gonna amongst people who were looking for that uh, that niche of filmmaking. He's really good at it. Well, so, and I mean, know, at the, the time when when it started to you know seven, eight, nine years afterwards, people started to compare him to the great surrealists of the 1920s and 30s, Louise Bunuel and. Um, you know, those are things that I think he would have appreciated. And mm-hmm. that's more, I mean, obviously anybody is going to want commercial success and accolades. And I'm sure it hurt him when, you know, Fire Walk With Me was booed at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. But, you know, f- hearing from someone that they're they're comparing one of your films to, you know, Le Chien Andalou or, you know, any of these great works of surrealist film or art, that must have felt pretty good and yeah. i think that's worth it's worth looking at um just because of that was the the vein that he seems to have been working in yeah. it's the stuff that he that called to him and that he maybe didn't directly reference but was able to incorporate i mm-hmm. think in a in a sense although it's interesting because in another uh, another review in the atlantic the writer in The Atlantic, Lloyd Rose, compared it or contrasted uh, Lynch Lynch's surrealism with early surrealism in film by saying that films like Bunuel's L'Age d'Or or Le Chien Andalou were reaching out to the audience, whereas David Lynch's film 
forces you, you're kind of, I think the quote is you sink into them. You sink into David Lynch's surrealism, mm-hmm. um, which is different. It's It feels like surrealism as a, you know, generally is, is up until this point was more something that um, it elevated you almost in a way, like it pulled you out of yourself. Whereas David Lynch really, because I think of a lot of this as nightmare, (laughs) nightmare fodder, really, um, it pulls you in, it, it draws you into your own subconscious and your own um, fears and. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's very emotionally driven, whereas perhaps a typical surrealist thing might be like, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's more this of a, is like, uh, like this a cerebral. Is yeah, yeah. Like, like there's there's a little bit more of a um, an emotional connection to it. Exactly. I mean, the fact that he, he kind of works with, I mean, and this is Lynchian 101, is you know he's taking an everyday situation and then adding the surrealism right, to it. Right. Um, I don't know any of those films you were talking about earlier. I'm not a film guy, so I don't know any of the French backgrounds or anything like that. But I would imagine it, it's it's probably surrealism for surrealism's sake. I yeah, like, and and a, and a lot of it was more. There were um, maybe not political aims, but they had mm. you know manifestos, and it yeah. was it was the 1920s. I mean, yeah. everybody had a manifesto, right? Yeah. So there was there was more of an ideological bent to a lot of this stuff that yeah. people were doing it for. Uh, for cerebral or for, um, I don't know the word, but but they were doing it for a purpose. Yeah. Whereas David Lynch seems to be doing this just, because just, this is how he tells a story. Exactly, this and is, that yeah. that makes a big difference because, and it's more personal. I think, mm-hmm. especially with a film like Eraserhead, and we're not going to. I, I think it's a mistake. It's a big mistake that a lot of people make. They they look at David Lynch's life. Or they look at any artist's life and then they try and read into the work that they were creating at that time in order to get meaning from it, extra meaning from it. And that's that's a fallacy that um, in literary circles, people try very hard not to do that because it's it's not always, you know, we're well, you can, yeah. Aiden and I are both writers. We write about things that don't happen to us that aren't directly referenced or references direct that aren't direct references to things that are happening in our lives. 150 or 300 years from now, if somebody were to read our books, would they sit there and think, oh, well, you know, I would hope they wouldn't say this is this must be what they were going through at this time. You know, it's it's that whole Nobody's death of be the author. Our books no, okay, but, but, but I'm yeah, just, it's know. an example, right? Like people look at Shakespeare and they try yes. and say, "Oh, well, Hamlet was written because of his, son his son's yeah. death." Yeah. And and that's not necessarily you can no, if you're a good that. writer, you have empathy and you're able to yes. to put yourself in those situations. Well, so no, you're able to pull other situations and pull, in, exactly, them, thank whatever. You. And, and absolutely, but at the same time, I I kind of disagree with you on this. We're gonna get the bickering started right here because I feel like having written many things, you can't help but have some parts of yourself of expressed in the thing. And the fact that the, he spent seven years doing this, mm-hmm. it was I feel. I, last time I spent five years writing something, it was very, because it was personal to me. It was something sure. I really cared about and I wanted to see done right. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm willing to put in the time and effort because it had a personal connection for me. That's not always the case. And definitely re- I'm reading into it saying, yes, he spent seven years partly because it was personal. Maybe that's wrong, but I am willing to jump out on a limb and say this. This was the time when he'd become a father mm-hmm. <laughs> and it probably was scary. Uh, and uh, he's talked fairly openly about not not openly about this, but talking to his daughter mm-hmm. Jennifer. Jennifer, um, she's mentioned on a couple occasions. I think that you know 
it's kind of eerie to have a racer head be <laughs> kind of a testament to your early childhood. But at the same time, he said that, and, and that's a very popular yes. uh, theory yeah, well, exactly, that, yeah. that eraser head is about the fear of fatherhood or a fear of sex or a fear of all of that. Yeah. Um, based on the life circumstances that uh, birthed eraser head. Mm-hmm. He has, yes. Okay. Yeah. He said that no one to this point, up until the point that he gave that interview, had hit on his interpretation of the film. So it might be that we can read into it and think, oh, well, this does seem like it is a fear of fatherhood or a fear of parenthood or a fear of children or something. But that's not necessarily what David Lynch yeah. was putting into it. And, and I yeah, think that's important that's, that's because, totally. because he has said that, you know, it's it's less about what the author brings. You can't dig up a dead author and ask them what their meaning, what their their stories mean. It's pointless. There's yeah. no point to it. So everybody brings something to it. Yes. So if you are. Your interpretation is half of it. as What you know is valid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that's it's absolutely valid to <laughs> say that this is what it means. And this this. And David Lynch would say that that is valid, too. And we'll be coming back to that interpretation full circle when we get to the Inland Empire. So keep (laughs) that in mind for, you know, a year from now. So let's talk a little bit about the movie itself. Let's jump in. I don't know if we'll do a scene-by-scene analysis. It's kind of hard to do. Well, I mean, it it does proceed more or less straightforward. Yeah, it's literally one thing leads to another. But... It's still, I, I think there's broader themes and emotions that are being brought up that are um, more interesting to talk about than, yeah. but obviously there are things to go with sound and visuals that we'll have to yes, dig course. in. But, so this is going to be kind of a different, maybe a different way of, mm-hmm. I don't know, we'll find out when we get to the end. Maybe it'll be exactly the same as all of our other analyses. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Um, so we'll start off at the beginning. There's, there's Jack Nance. His head floating sideways. Henry. Call him Henry. Henry. Henry Henry's, Spencer is yes. the main character. Oh, he has a last name. He does okay. have a last name. I never picked up on that. We uh, have Henry Spencer floating through space, which is uh, immediately, for anybody who has seen Twin Peaks, The Return, it's Major Briggs floating through yeah. space. This is That was the callback, I think, from, from part three mm-hmm. of The Return. Uh, and this is broadly understood. This, this opening sequence is broadly, kind of broadly understood as... Uh, a conception yeah. of some sort. Yeah. Henry's mouth opens and this sperm thing. thing exits Ugh. his mouth. Yeah. And we go into the planet that's there, also in yes. the shot and it's probably an egg. And <laughs> then we go inside there and it falls into a factory type setting. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, what's the actor's name? Jack again? Fisk. Jack Fisk. He's playing the man in the planet who oh, is, that is what he's called? yeah, he's covered in, in scabs and he doesn't yeah. look very, um, healthy yeah but he's he's moving all these gears and levers so it's it becomes a mechanical process this mm. is not um it's not a loving uh depiction of conception it's very mechanical it's very you know and i guess in a, in a sense biology is sort of mechanical things happen one two three that they just do because that's how we're coded to do this mm-hmm. dna codes us to do that yeah so that seems to me to be what that yeah. what that means. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and then that sequence ends with us entering into the light, which is yeah. probably the birth of. That's what I interpreted. That's how I viewed it too. So yeah. yeah, this whole sequence is kind of the creation of the major elements for the rest of the story, which yeah. is the the racer head baby. Yeah. So which we'll get to. We uh, we then follow Henry in this 
beautifully broad. Oh, um, I love this it, Just immersive landscape of this industrial, based on Philadelphia, I think. Yeah. You know, 1960s Philadelphia. So factories and this just omnipresent mechanically grinding sound yeah. that just hums over every Everything. scene. And we just follow Henry as he's walking, presumably walking home from work. And he's, you know, walking over mounds and stepping into puddles and encountering all of the things that make up his neighborhood. And it, it gives you a sense of he's the only person that we see throughout this entire thing. So it's it's a lonely existence. Yeah, It's surrounded by... I don't know if I'd call it cold machinery because I find David Lynch's black and white filming to be very warm and inviting, even when it's, you know, it's supposed to be bleak and yeah, stark. Yeah. Um, it still feels very uh, warm. I can't think of another word to use. But he's alone. Henry is alone. And he's walking through. He goes to his apartment. And we see a lot of elements right away that um, are that come back in, in yeah. Lynch films and, and especially in Twin Peaks. So yeah. what are some of those? There's the Chevron floors. Uh, there's well, there's no curtains. Not not at this point. Um, we do get curtains later on. Um, and, you know, just the hair, the crazy <laughs> hair. I mean, we haven't talked about that yet, but uh, Henry's hair is the work of legend. Six feet high. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, yeah. And I remember in one interview, uh, Catherine Coulson and, and David Lynch were talking about how she had to do, first of all, she was married to Jack Nance yes. at this time. The two of them were married. Um, and yeah, she she was in charge of the hair. So mm-hmm. like she had to get it ready. I don't remember, I don't think she even remembered what product they used or anything like that, but it was like... Industrial strength wax, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it's something like that. <laughs> and it was just a labor of love. But I mean, that alone is just like... I mean, kind of wacky hair. I mean, he doesn't use it a lot in other films, but occasionally you'll see it. In the, well, it's yeah. it's just that that one characteristic that a character will have that sets them apart. Yes. You know, the yeah. log lady carries a log, and Henry Spencer has this high yeah. hair, and yeah. um, which you see in reference in other films like Barton Fink. The main mm-hmm. character in Barton Fink has hair yeah. like that too. So I mean, it, it becomes something that is uh, iconic for. This film, and I mean, all the iconic scenes, with the exception of any of the baby stuff, are featuring Jack Nance's face and that hair. Yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 it's the standout defining visual, I think, yeah. people immediately recognize. Yeah. And that's interesting just because it's it's that one characteristic that defines yeah. him visually. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But uh, he, he also... Okay, sorry. No, I was just going to say, there's also the flickering light in the oh, elevator. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get your first electricity. Well, and even just the long, the long scenes, the long shots mm-hmm. that just... Um, they linger. They're not fast, you know, seven, well, eight, ten second long... Yeah. The, the elevator doors just don't close. Like, they just, yeah. they, they're taken forever, and then all of a sudden they kind of snap shut. Yeah. And we're just sitting there watching him waiting for the doors to close. It's it's the 1977 version of sweeping the roadhouse floor, right? Mm-hmm. But immediately it's it's a slow film that you're going to um, linger in. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, which is very Lynch, yeah. Exactly. To borrow Joel Bacco's explanation, it's, it's that kind of the space that you, that you can really cozy up in and live in because Mm. you're given all this time to really sink into it. 
Uh, so we follow Henry upstairs uh, through the elevator and he you see him in the hallway uh, and he's heading towards his apartment when his neighbor steps out yeah. and says, and it's a lady neighbor, yeah. uh, attractive lady. Yes. Um, and she informs him that uh, Mary had called him on the payphone yeah. and uh, invited him over for dinner right. with her family. Uh, it's there's some tension here. I think this is the yeah. first time that we get any kind of plot tension. It's first spoken words yeah. in in well, David Lynch's oeuvre, really. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's uh, it's tense right away because um, you're like immediately, who's Mary? Um, there, the, this neighbor is attractive. Henry seems to be attracted to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got this insight into a personal part of his life that he didn't know about. Um, even if it's just a phone call, it's mm. still her interjecting herself into his personal life in a way that I don't know if it makes him uncomfortable because you don't really get a read on, on any of his expressions no. most of the time. But he doesn't seem to be he never seems to be comfortable. No. But in this situation, especially, yeah. it's it's pretty clear that this is an unwanted um, this, this isn't the reason that he would want to talk to his neighbor across the hall. There are a bunch of reasons why he would want to have a conversation with her and talking about Mary, his ex-girlfriend, presumably, uh, isn't one of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but then we, he goes, goes into his, his apartment, apartment yeah. and we get to see the, the, the life of Henry Spencer, which yeah. is pretty small and, yeah. and kind of strange. His apartment is, is yep. strange. It's very strange, yes. There's a lot of strangeness going on. There's a lot of dirt <laughs> yeah, there's just dirt on the floor in a lot of places. Yeah, by the and radiator on top of his dresser at one yeah. point. And there's a little evolution of the arm <laughs> tree on his bedside table. Yeah, it really does look like an early prototype for the yeah. evolution of the arm. Right in front of a, a photograph of the White Sands, New Mexico explosion. Well, um, not the White not Sands one, one, but, but yes, the but one that, that we saw on uh, Gordon Cole's wall in uh, one of the early parts of Twin Peaks. Yeah. So, um, you know, all of those things are being brought back in Again, yeah. in Twin Peaks that had their start here, which is really cool. Another example of that is the record. He comes in and he sets a record on just mm-hmm. very similar to Leland Palmer. Yeah. Um, and kind of like Leland, he's he's kind of unhappy. He keeps kind of picking a new song or skipping over stuff. And then he yeah. eventually settles on a tune. It feels like kind of like a... I don't know, like a continental waltz kind of thing, almost. It's, or something like yeah, that. it's an old song by Fats Waller that was okay. used in, uh, on the organ. So it's mm. it's kind of an interesting pick for this soundtrack because it it lends a kind of old timey feel to it. Yeah, well, <coughs> and, and that's what that's what this whole section reminded me of. Is it, it felt like the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it felt like this is not so much what David Lynch grew up in, mm-hmm. um, although the 50s probably weren't that much different from the the 30s in a lot of ways but it has that kind of like um urban poverty from that era like i mean the fact that he he's kind of like diligently taking off his socks and making sure they're all well they're wet first of all so he has to make sure that that they dry but but yeah his threadbare um yeah coverlet that on his bed and just how sparsely furnished his whole apartment is it it doesn't seem like he has a lot of money even though he has a good job right well he has a job. I mean, yeah, it's 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 interesting that, that he kind of pulls on this kind of um, aesthetic and indicates that Henry is a certain kind of person. He doesn't, mm-hmm. yeah, he doesn't have wealth, even though he has, yeah, a job. He doesn't have, um, you know, 
technology or anything like that. Everything is very, very basic. His his electricity like sparks when he turns it yeah. on and stuff. It's not even consistent power and stuff. This apartment building feels like it was built in the 1910s or something like that. And it's just kind of been sitting there. Um, and the, the other uh, thing that kind of ties into this and to the future Lynch works is the sound of uh, the radiator. Right. And we get a long uh, dangling shot across the radiator as this kind of hissing... Uh, intense burning sound kind of comes across and it, it very much reminded me of well it didn't didn't remind me of a lot of uh, the other works but it very much felt like this is his sound the sound of his brain being boiled alive like being stuck oh, in this environment uh, <laughs> in this kind of level of poverty is uh, you know just just soul crushing and it just hisses away at his core which is really interesting because the radiator is the source of the one thing of pleasure that he has in his mm-hmm. life so if it is a metaphor for his brain or for his mind the fact that you felt that it was being boiled mm-hmm. is really interesting because um just because it's it's his escape that's yeah. that's his one escape yeah and it's interesting because i don't i don't view the radiator so much as as the point of escape as it is an out it is a a mind-numbing Thing upon which he can project his so like his, a television or something yeah exactly it would be the equivalent of, of a television in, in future lynch movies and other you know tv and stuff like that sure um because when he stares at the radiator the first time there's a there's a sense that there's something underneath there we get a glow don't yeah, we get a glow get from it we don't of, see anything inside it yeah yet. yeah um and later on we do uh but again to me it's it's really more of a just a blank surface on which he's going to project whatever right. he wants to right the last part of his apartment, too, that uh, is worth mentioning is he looks out his window and just a wall. There's just a brick wall. Yeah, on the other it's side. unclear if if it's the wall, like the window is bricked up because it, go- it does look like that. Kind but of. I can't imagine that that would be legal. Well, yeah. And later on, you do <laughs> so, see him looking down. But that's that's interesting because there have been some interpretations about that that we'll get into. Oh, okay. um, so whether he just faces a brick wall and it's very close or whether it's bricked up. The fact that that we get this shot of the window, the window plays a very important part. Let's just put it that mm-hmm. way. When we get to there, yeah. we'll talk about it. Um, so we get a few more hints of what's going on with him and Mary uh, when we go into his drawers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. we find this drawer is full of the most random assortment of things. There's yeah. like a bowl of water that he throws coins into. It's like a wishing well, yeah. but in his drawer, which is really interesting. But he digs around and he finds this photo of Mary and it's ripped in half. So, I mean, without words, you know that this is this was a, a relationship that had an unhappy end mm-hmm. that clearly it was bad enough that Henry tore up the photo that he had of her. Um, but he reassembles it very gingerly and puts it on top of his dresser because he's going to be seeing Mary tonight for dinner. Um, and cue cutting to Mary. Of course. Yeah. Uh, we see her, her right in, yeah. in looking out the window, peering out the curtains, waiting for him to arrive. Mm-hmm. And he does. And she's living in this, again, very um, industrial landscape. There's just steam pouring out of something somewhere. Right, some machine nearby. Yeah. But it's it's a house that's right in between factories, it looks like. Yeah. And there's pipes inside the house that just jut out at, at random places that shouldn't be there. But yeah. her father laid all the pipes. So yeah. he clearly had a vision. And this is where he wanted them to be. Um, not just for the house, but for the whole neighborhood. It's He's like the pipe guy. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll get there right away. Yeah. Um, but it, she berates him immediately like because yeah. he's standing out front of her house and, and he doesn't seem like he wants to come in or he's not sure how to come in. 
and she yells at him right away and and it's clear that their relationship wasn't a happy one but um but there he's there she's accepting him she invites him into the house and that's when we meet mary x's family oh and what a family it is uh <laughs> so we start off with the mother uh does she have a name i don't remember no i think it's just mrs x or, mrs. I think. X or something okay um so yeah and <clears throat> so there's there's this scene is just it's a lot <laughs> um but again he meets her uh she's very kind of cold to him um you know she doesn't really say much of anything to him really except yeah. for you know you're here or something like that um but it's kind of overwhelmed by this this weird skittering sucking sound um which we don't know what it, which is what it is for the first little while then we look down and there's a uh Mother dog. dog. Yeah, with like a dozen friggin' puppies just nursing on her. Yeah. It's really disturbing because this is just happening out in the, the middle of the room. Well, and, and it's not the, the typical loving yeah. vision of motherhood or anything like, you know, yeah. I, I thought immediately of 101 Dalmatians where Pongo and Perdita have their babies. And it's like, as soon as the babies are born, it's like this you know, warm glow and the puppies are suckling and it's all loving. And this, the, the mother puppy just looks completely, um, overwhelmed. Like she's not, yeah, she's not happy. No, she's all. laying there and all these puppies are kind of climbing all over her. And, and it, it seems like if, if there was ever a metaphor for this film to, at this point, before we even know what the movie is about, this is a hint yeah. of what is to come, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's my interpretation. Yeah. Your interpretation? Yeah, no, I, cool. I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it's Mary's mother uh, starts asking him, like, what do you do? Yeah. At which point it gets really weird because Mary starts, like, rocking and She has, like, howling. a seizure or something, it seems like. And, and her mother starts brushing her hair and that kind of takes her out of it yeah. but henry doesn't respond so to it seems either. like this is something that happens often yeah. that or or it's just this isn't even the weirdest thing that's happened to henry today so he's not even going to acknowledge it but yeah he, it's it's an amazing scene for that fact alone like yeah. everything up to here has been odd mm-hmm. but not like interpersonally odd it's just been henry's life is a little weird so you can kind of write it off yeah he flicks uh coins into little jars of water in his bedroom why mm-hmm. not sure uh but this is like the whole world that we inhabit at this point has been confirmed as just bizarre. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the fact that Henry doesn't respond is that we're viewing it as bizarre, but to him, this is just life. This yeah. Is, and same with, with uh, her mother who just immediately starts combing her hair until she comes out of it and just starts having a conversation, conversation again, again, just yeah. as if nothing had happened. Yeah. So, um, and this, and then that is intercut by, uh, Bill. Bill, the father, who comes in and immediately starts complaining about the chickens or yeah. talking about the chickens, about not the complaining chickens. about them, but how they're really small and they're manufactured. Yeah. They're not natural, natural I guess. Yeah, Is that, yeah. That's the point that we're getting yeah. at. Um, and then he starts complaining about his knees, knees. and the and pipes. And yeah, he starts explaining how he was the plumber and like he, yeah, he's been in charge of the pipes and everything. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, that's okay. Yep. So it's just, it's, it's, this family is so strange and but and the situation is strange because yeah. as he's talking about his knees i think uh this uh harsh mechanical like oh no it's like a it's like a like an airplane is flying overhead like it's just this roar comes over the whole room and mm-hmm. he doesn't respond he doesn't even talk louder really he just kind of continues talking about his knees and stuff well i think that's because it's it's supposed to be representative of his his emotions being tied up with the with the pipes, he's the one who laid the pipes. Oh, I like His that. emotions, 
you know, are connected to the pipes. Okay. So, so when, when he gets agitated, agitated, the pipes get agitated. agitated yeah. I like That's that. how I read it. Okay. Because he's pretty docile the rest of the... Yeah, incredibly so, scene, because yeah. the rest of the scene gets very strange. And um, God does it. The, the dinner scene is another one that's fairly famous for uh, what happens to these chickens. When uh, Henry is given the opportunity to carve the chickens, he doesn't really know how to carve them because they are very small. They're yeah. like smaller than Cornish game hens. Yeah, they're very they're tiny. very tiny. But he goes to carve them and the legs start moving. And what I, I presume is blood starts pouring out of, out of the the hole in yeah. the bottom of the chicken. And, <laughs> and Mary start. starts. Oh, yeah. The legs, the legs are just kicking. They're just moving back and forth. Like, like the chicken wings are just just to do it, just to go on. So Mary starts crying and the mother starts salivating. In, in a very, like, sexual, yeah, orgasmic it's like way. ecstasy, yeah. Yeah. While the father just kind of grins at this yeah, whole just, scene he's just happening. He's kind of staring at it, doesn't know what's going on. Um, and it, it takes on a very, I think in context of what we know happens later with Mary's mother coming on to Henry mm-hmm. uh, in the next scene. And then the real reason that he's there, which is to um, talk about this baby that Mary's had. Yeah. It does take on sexual connotations. Yeah. There's, there's, yes, there's blood pouring out of this chicken, but the chicken is moving its legs in a way that suggests sex mm-hmm. is happening yeah. or that something sexual is going on. And then the fact that there's blood seems to link in with this sex being something that is destructive or something mm-hmm. that is um, not very, it's, it's natural, but it's not natural. It's happening to a manufactured chicken and it's, um, it's depraved. It is. In a it's way. Really, so yeah. if you're if you're gonna look at this film as a condemnation of sex, it starts here with mm-hmm. sex and parenthood, with the, the yeah. poor mother dog and then this sexualized chicken and the mother having what like, looks like an orgasm because of this yeah. chicken. What's happening to the chicken? It's all very uh very unnerving. Yes. That is a great way to put it. Unnerving. A hundred percent. And yeah, so Mary chases after her mother into the kitchen. We didn't talk about the grandma who's we didn't, just there. Yes, there's a grandma in the kitchen smoking a cigarette. But well, she, she not seems, doesn't do anything. Well, She's comatose. She does, but she like. does have a cigarette in her mouth. Well, the, Mary's mom puts it in oh, there she after does? she forces her to mix the so, salad. Yeah, she puts a salad bowl in her lap and then like moves behind her and moves her arms as... So, so the grandma mother, can help with... Mary's mom yeah. is holding Mary's grandmother's arms... Which, tossing the salad. Now that you've mentioned, you know, the whole parenthood aspect to the scene, I didn't really read into it that way, but I mean, it's absolutely there. You know, is is it kind of like after your parents you left as this empty husk? <laughs> you right. know, like that's what the grandma is. She literally does not move. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting in comparison to the grandmother, uh, the short film where right. the grandmother was a source of great joy as a child. Right. Um, but, you know, maybe <laughs> as a parent, you know, when, now that Lynch is getting that kind of angle on it, it's it's, uh, you know, this is what grandmothers wind up becoming. I don't know. That's a bit of a read. Into well, it, no, but. I mean, that, and that could be, too. Or it's it's a comment on um, what happens to parents in our society when they become older yeah. and then you start taking care of your parents. Yeah. So whether you have a child of your own and take care of that child or whether you take care of your elderly parents, you're still parenting in, in some respects. A lot of us do anyway. Yeah. We we parent our parents as they as get well. older. So yeah. there's there might be something to to that read as well. As well. Yeah. Um but yeah, anyways, we do follow uh after 
Uh, Mary's mom comes out of the kitchen again. She wants to talk to Henry about sexual intercourse. Yes. Um, she grills Privately. Him. Privately, yeah. <laughs> she pulls him aside. The, the light in the corner flickers out, of course, just to add that extra Lynchian tension. Uh, and then, yeah, she grills him about, have you guys had sexual intercourse? And Henry's like, well, but I, I love Mary and all. Well, he does, it's, it's a conversation you don't want to have with anybody, but let alone your ex-girlfriend's mother while yeah. you've been invited over for dinner. And right after her chickens have bled all over you. So, I mean, it's... For Henry, it's overwhelming and confusing. And then to add to that, she starts kissing him. Making out on his neck and stuff. It's it's a strange scene that Mary interrupts and starts crying at her mother to stop. Like this is something that happens on the regular. Um, Um, And then the mother says, you're going to get married. And then we'll pick up the baby. But the important thing is that Mary says, they're not even sure if it is a baby. Which to me... I was like, yes, it is not a baby. <laughs> Submit it to science for study because this is not human, but we'll, we'll get there when we actually see the baby. Um, and then at my favorite part of this scene is Mary saying, you don't mind, do you, Henry? You know about getting married? <laughs> Meanwhile, Henry's developed a massive nosebleed. So, yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the scene ends with them agreeing to get married, and we cut to the next scene, which is sometime later after the marriage, uh, Mary and Henry are living together with the baby in Henry's apartment. Yeah. And Mary is trying to feed this baby. I'm glad you almost put air quotes I around it. I almost put air quotes around it. Because it's not a baby. It. It's it's a grotesque exaggeration of what, you know, a beast could be. Uh, and, yes, so she's trying to feed it. But let's talk about the baby first. Because yeah. it is an amazing prosthetic thing that they built. It's a prop. Sure, but Aesthetic? it looks human. It looks like it's alive. Like it, it has, uh, like muscles, and it seems to be like it, the muscles pull and move the head. Like it, it's just for 1977. There's no obviously no CGI. There's mm-hmm. these are all practical effects and practical props that they built. Um, and this is where Lynch, as you know, the sculptor, the the uh, artist, comes out um, because the baby is truly. Like, a sight to behold. Like, mm-hmm. even to this day, it looks... Well, to me, it's terrifying. But, like, the eyes are moving and it, it moves just a little bit. Uh, it, it articulates the, the jaw and yeah. the mouth moves. The, it, there, it seems like there's blood flowing through it. Yeah. Um, it, it really feels like it is alive. And what's interesting is that for all of these years, David Lynch has not said how he made this. Yeah. So I'm working under the assumption that this was a real live thing that mm-hmm. he found in an alley. <laughs> yep, I am conjured I up out of a cauldron and <laughs> put on the table some kind of Faustian pact with the devil. This is going to be your baby for a racer head because I, I honestly don't know what I no he idea used how to make he this. Did this. Yeah, it's it's really really incredible though. I mean, mm-hmm. like I, I hate the baby. It's it's terrifying to me. Uh, partly because it is that that level of realism. It yeah. has, it feels like this is a living creature, um, and that's terrifying because usually you know even like Alien and you know other movies of this era and later on um, when they had you know uh, non human things that. Like not like Ewoks, like or Jawas, you know, yeah, stuff yeah. that's non-humanoid, but but is supposed to be human. Right. You can always tell it's it. You can always tell. Well, but but it's not it's not supposed to be representative of something that we could encounter in real life. But whereas this, we know from context that this was something that Mary gave birth to. Yeah. So on top of it being unnaturally ugly and grotesque, 
it's human mm-hmm. or it's supposed, it's supposed to be supposed human to be. and it's, that it's makes supposed it to be, more unnerving it's supposed to be of henry i think yeah. that's the most important part because uh the baby does look like the sperm from the it very does. opening sequence yeah. and the future sperms that we see resemble this um so i really do feel like henry is the problem henry is yeah. the, henry's fatherhood is uh the issue which is why you know i think we all agree that part of this movie is about the angst of fatherhood because he's come to this point. So Mary struggles to feed this baby and uh, it keeps spitting up the food. And you can tell that this is a daily struggle for her. This is, this is her cross to bear. This is what Mary deals with as a mother is trying to nourish her baby. She doesn't seem very much like the dog. Yeah. 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 She doesn't seem disgusted by, by what she sees. Um, There's no judgment there. Mm -hmm. There's no judgment even from Henry. Um, But, it's still a taxing, tiring uh, problem that she has because the baby will not eat or, or just won't eat what she's giving, what she's giving it. Meanwhile, Henry is, I think, returning from work probably, and he goes to the mailbox and he opens up what appears to be a grub, some kind yeah, of... And Aiden, thing. you had a really interesting... Well, no, let's well, get We'll get there later, yeah. Um, and he takes the grub away to look at it, right? Like he, yeah, it he, seems like he gets the mail, but he doesn't open it in the lobby or yeah. even in his apartment. He leaves the building mm-hmm. to open it, which I think is important because it's, so. it's like this is a private thing for him. He, yeah. he doesn't now that he doesn't have the apartment to himself, he has to go and hide and find these little places where he can admire the things that are important to just him. Or even if it's not admire, just to examine those things yeah. that that he would have been able to just do in his. In his yeah. everyday life, yeah. but he can't anymore because he's sharing his world with Mary and this baby. Yeah. But he does come in after he's opened this mail and he comes in, uh, smiles at the baby, which is yeah. interesting. He yeah. smiles at this domestic scene that that he's created, I yeah. guess, or that he's able to witness. Um, but he flops onto the bed. And I think this is where it gets really interesting because um, he stares at the radiator and we see the stage inside the radiator. Yeah. Uh, with the lights on and everything like that but nothing happens nothing happens and i think that's really important because this would be what henry would do he would come home from work and he would daydream it's what we do we come home from work and we sit on the couch and we watch tv or we write or we read or whatever we 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 do this relaxation thing and henry can't do that he tries he thinks this is going to be how his day will go and he's stymied because he sees the stage, but then the lights go out and he well, is and no it, longer able to access it. Exactly. And it's interesting. What happens is that uh, Mary asks about the mail. Yeah. And he lies to her and yes. says there was none. Yeah. Um, and But that's what interrupts him, basically, is, is yes. Mary's presence. And it's, yeah, it's a hint of his anxiety. And, and that's where we see the shot of the window again with light coming in through the mm-hmm. window. Um, or shining on the bricks anyway. And then the light disappears, which... Um, or does it disappear? I think so. Yeah. Or doesn't it wind up shining on the baby? Well, I think point? I think it shows up the next that night. Oh, but, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But either way, I think it's important that that the window that we see light coming in or shining somewhere outside on those bricks at the moment when Henry lies about what he got in the mail, which is a question Mary asks him that breaks his daydream that interrupts mm-hmm. his cycle of life i guess mm-hmm. what he would do in that day yeah. and you had a really interesting idea about the the grub that i think is it's worth mentioning at this juncture sure well i mean david lynch uh has always talked about ideas 
as uh, kind of fish that you catch. And, uh, catching the big fish, catching is the big fish is making that big idea yeah, happen, exactly. right? Um, and so obviously a grabber, a worm of some sort would be an ideal lure uh, for the catching of fish. Um, and so I feel like uh, if we're going to jump right into the whole uh, Henry as David Lynch kind of situation, I mean, they do have crazy hair. Uh, <laughs> it would be, you know, Henry... Henry loves this grub because it is a gateway to catching a great idea that's going to change his life and change the world and change everything around him. Um, and Which uh, he keeps private from exactly, his wife and exactly. baby. It's, it, it's just for him. It's just for his brain and his use. Um, and maybe looking to the radiator is where he would throw that, that grub to, to catch the fish. Um, and it gets interrupted yeah. here. Um, and in future scenes, the grub, when it does make an appearance again, it's it's similar in that it's similar in that kind of usage that it's something that's private for him to, uh, you know, make his life have meaning in some way, right? To to catch the big idea, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it gets interrupted again and again. I would say throughout this process. Another interesting, and I love that idea. When you brought that up, I almost stopped the movie because I wanted to think about how great that was. That's so cool. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. Um, because it makes sense in, in later scenes. When I first watched this film, I thought the grub was going to be the food that he would give to the baby. I thought mm. that that would be, and he was withholding it for some reason. And it didn't make sense in, no, in the, yeah. the long run. Because, but in that first scene, it does make sense because the baby's not eating anything. And in a later scene, it seems like he's going to go get the grub to feed the baby, but he doesn't. Yeah. And I didn't really... Uh, continue that line of reasoning until you brought this up because i thought if he were to give the grub to the baby it would be giving over that that lure that idea he's giving up the thing that would catch him that big idea that would catch him meaning in his life in order to nourish his child yeah which is like the ultimate sacrifice Uh, of course and that's what that's what uh, i mean everybody that we talk to who is a parent has talked about that sacrifice that they make when maybe they don't you know go write that big novel because they're taking care of their children or they um, don't take a job or they don't exactly, take anything right? or yeah. go on a trip because yeah. they have children and it's the sacrifice that, that parents make. Um, is that Henry's sacrifice mm-hmm. or was that, would that have been his sacrifice yeah. that he doesn't make in yeah. the end? Because the grub ends up yes. not, not playing quite that same role. No, yeah. but it was interesting to me that that's where my mind went. And then you brought that up and it was like yeah, kismet, kismet here, man. Yeah, well, it happens every now and then. But anyway, that night, um, yes. we get the baby crying nonstop. And it's this part of the soundtrack now. Oh, it is, That this yeah. mewling baby is is just... And it tugs on your heartstrings a little. I can't, I don't know how it doesn't for you. But when I hear a baby crying, even if it's a grotesque baby, I want to comfort it. I don't know why, but it's no, just it, like... Well, no, I know exactly why, but... <laughs> but he, <laughs> But it's not, I mean, there's nothing that they can do to calm this baby down. They no, can't. It's, it's like any crying baby who yeah. you've fed and you've cleaned and you've done everything for. Some They might just be a little sick or it might be a sure. little tired and it's not sleeping well. There's a, Who knows? You mm-hmm. know, Babies you can't communicate with. You can't figure out what exactly is wrong. So you try and do everything you can. But after a certain point, they're just going to cry. Yeah. And you just kind of kind of bear through it. So right? here are these parents who are trying to get some sleep and Mary can't. Oh, and she's, she's tossing she's the and turning. Absolutely. Yeah. She wakes up at one point and goes over to the baby and just screams at it to shut up. And eventually she can't handle it anymore and she leaves. She tells Henry she's going for one. She just wants one decent yeah. night's sleep. So she's going back to her parents and she takes her suitcase to out from under the bed, which 
was really an interesting scene yeah, because it's a weird shot. when you first see it happening, you're not really sure what she's doing because she bends down kind of like Bob at the oh, end of yeah, Laura Palmer's like, bed. Yeah, yeah. And she's pulling on something or, or the bed is moving and Henry doesn't know what the hell she's doing either. Yeah. But eventually she pulls out this suitcase, this suitcase yeah. that she's been struggling to dislodge from underneath the bed. She doesn't fill it with anything. No, it's it's it I think might she be was full already. Yeah, I think she was ready to go. <laughs> but she takes it and leaves. Yeah. And now Henry is is left with this baby that he has to take care of by himself. Up until this point he hasn't done much of anything with the baby. Mary's been the primary caregiver and yeah. now this is Henry's job. Yeah. Interesting to note that yes, the light in the window is back in the at the beginning of this yeah. scene. So Yeah. Just keep, keep in, in mind. mind. Yeah, yeah. Um So then uh we so Henry's now taking care of the baby. Yeah. He's kind of wandering around. He doesn't know what to do at the start. Uh, and it's interesting that the neighbor possibly arrives home at that yeah. time. He, he Does he watch her through the keyhole at this point? Or he either that... watches her through the keyhole or he opens the door and sees her. But we do notice that yeah. she's that she's, she's there. there. So she's a, her presence is back in the scene, which yeah. is important for later on. Yeah. Um, Especially then, at this moment because Mary has just left. Yes. So the neighbor is now. Yes. The blonde um, maybe has the left place. and the brunette is available. Again. Yes. We didn't mention that earlier, but she is the brunette and Mary is blonde. Yeah. Um, and so Henry, though, he's going to be a good parent. Mm-hmm. He goes to take the baby's temperature, mm-hmm. um, pulls it out, and it's like 85 degrees, which would be dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not. Uh, it's not human Not again. realistic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, he thinks that maybe the baby is sick and and. The temperature doesn't alarm him. No, he's not super scared. But when he turns away and turns back, the baby is suddenly covered with these sores yeah. and and crusty like scabs. And yeah. yeah. So and Henry, uh, it, it's frightening because it's it's filmed, and there's an, an underlying uh, sound effect that is jarring. Yeah. So as a viewer, it's a bit of a jump scare. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, which is surprising. As much as David Lynch does jump scares, this yeah. is about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Henry's like, oh, you are sick. Yeah. And it's really touching because he sets up this humidifier and he's trying. He sits down beside the baby and it seems like this is what he does now. He He's there in his tie, what he would normally wear to work. But his job is now to sit beside the baby yeah. and watch over this baby. Just arms crossed, just sitting there yeah. waiting for the, for something to happen, for yeah. the baby to be better. Yeah. Um, with this humidifier, which is really sweet. I thought, you know, he's trying. Yeah. And this is the point where I thought he was debating about whether or not to give the baby the grub. Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure sense, if yeah. that if that ever occurred to no, you. But that's um, me. But I like... I, he it doesn't make sense, at any yeah. point yeah. give the baby no, the grub. But I thought that's what he would do, thinking, oh, well, maybe if I just feed the baby this grub, he'll be better. See, my first time I watched this, I was just so scared. I couldn't take my eyes off the baby. I was just like, oh, God. Especially now when it's all gross. And mm-hmm. like you see, like... It, its teeth are falling out kind of. Like oh, yeah. It, it doesn't teeth. look healthy. No, it looks sure. really gross. Like, I mean, again, it's just such nightmare fodder. This thing really scares the hell out of me. Um, but yeah, the first time I watched, that's all I could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case. Um, the I, metaphor gets beat over the head a little bit here yeah. with this. Because Henry gets up to leave and the baby starts screaming. So he closes the door and comes back. And when he tries to leave a second time, the baby starts crying again. Yeah. So he realizes that he can't leave. He is tethered to this baby. And I think that that is, um, in a 30-second a chunk of this film, really underscores Henry's dilemma now. Yeah. That that now that Mary is gone, he can't leave. Whether he was going to go to work or whether he was going to go do something for himself, well, I think he there, can't there's do a, that. There's a brief shot of the, the foyer and the, the mailbox again. Right, right. Uh, so I think his idea was to go... Uh, check for mail. Maybe there's another grub. Maybe sure. there's another idea that he can go uh, fishing for. Um, 
and yeah, but in that, either, in that in he either can't. case, he can't. Nothing, nothing happens. Now. Yeah, his his interests are secondary to the to the babies. Yeah. yeah. So later on, uh, the we get another shot of the radiator, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not really. I don't remember exactly if he's in bed just looking at it or not. I think it's nighttime. Yeah, yeah. I think so it's later. It's, it's yeah. later that same day, I would imagine. Yeah. So maybe as he's falling asleep. Um, so we go through this kind of steel beams of the of the radiator. The grills. Um, the grills. Thank you. Uh, and the stage comes to life. Again. Yeah. Uh, but this time, there's a performer on there. Uh, the lady in the, the lady, radiator. The lady in the radiator, uh, which, again, we'll talk about her. Uh, she's got two giant balls on her face. They almost look like mumps or, or yeah. like when you have like a goiter. I don't know, but they're like they're symmetrical cheesy. though. They're, it's weird. Yeah. Like they're, they're very strange. Uh, she's got this beautiful smile on her face. She's she's, her hair is, is 1950s style. Yeah. She's wearing this pretty dress that I imagine in my head is pink. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and, and she looks lovely. She's got this girl next door vibe to yeah, her. Yeah, very much. And it's important that she's blonde. I think that yes. that's, that's important. Just in context, I mean, you brought it up a little bit earlier, the blonde and the brunette dichotomy, which we talked about with relation to Twin Peaks. All of it. Yeah. Um, but David Lynch likes to play with that blondes being virtuous and, and uh, mm-hmm. paragons of, of... Good. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the brunettes are the Dark ones that yeah, and, yeah, drag you drag down to hell, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, so it's important that the lady in the radiator, who is, I guess you could call her his dream girl, yeah. uh, she's blonde yeah. and she's beautiful. Um, but in this scene, it it's not. It's interesting what she does. Yeah. I think that's the that's the important thing about this scene is that we hear that same organ music, the Fats Waller organ music. Um, and she dances around on the stage very simply, side to side, shuffle steps. But a bunch of sperms start falling <laughs> out of the sky, um, and they just kind of drop there. And she kind of looks around them, but she her smile's unending. She yeah. just continues. She's got her hands clasped. Yeah, and she's, she's just, just you, know, you know she's very happy to do whatever. It she's is. trying at first. It seems that she's trying not to step on yes. the sperm. Yeah. But um, but then after a while she just starts stomping on them and like spraying like white blood from inside the sperm everywhere. It's, it's goo. It's just, just goo. It's, goo. It, uh, it's really gross. <laughs> um, like but, popping a zit. Yeah, yeah, but even worse because it's sperm yeah. somehow. I don't know. Maybe so that's she's she's literally stomping on the source of of his progeny, I guess. Yeah. Well, okay. So how did you interpret the scene? Because to, the way I viewed it was that um, she was kind of. She was stepping on his masculinity and his okay. his joy of sex. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it's also stepping on, uh, kind of giving him a hint, like, no, 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 you have to stomp on these babies. They're, yeah. they're they, you don't want them, so just step on them, and it'll all be over. Kind. I of think thing. that's what I. That's how I interpreted it. Was that uh, she was kind of taking an an, an infanticidal stance yeah. that, um, I'm the woman of your dreams. I'm your dream mm-hmm. and in order for this dream to continue you have to kill the things that are distracting you from this dream and they are represented by these sperm like it's 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 a very um it's an expressionistic way of of depicting yeah. that without words to just say this is what this is what needs to happen next i I, I agree with that. I think it's interesting. It gets complicated the next time we see her. When, of course, when, yeah. The, when we see her again uh, in a couple scenes, mm-hmm. uh, she takes on a different 
view for me. Uh, so we can talk about that then. But I, I the re- the only reason I don't like the idea that she's uh, some sort of like guide figure almost mm-hmm. to him, even though that's kind of how this scene plays out, yeah. uh, is just the fact that um, we see her, the next two times we see her confiscates these things. So mm-hmm. just to keep it in mind, maybe. But she is like she she doesn't break eye contact with him or with us like she stares directly into the camera the entire time except when she's looking where to where to step yeah so it's almost like she's saying oh should i step there i'm gonna step there and then she stares right at you as she stomps on this thing so it's very aggressive and it seems like even especially with the smile on her face it's like um like like a lady Macbeth kind of thing you know a little bit yeah the serpent underneath the flower kind of thing i don't know but it's it's she's the flower it's weird yeah Yeah. no it's it's, it it takes on some very interesting Mm -hmm. um undertones overtones but it's still i I don't know i i totally see how you would get your view how you would get that um but i just think if she's if she is a representation of his subconscious which is how i interpreted it okay um then it seems like it's part of him that knows that this baby is the thing that's going to that's already yeah. starting to ruin his life. So yeah. um No, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I'll buy that interpretation for sure. Absolutely. No fight with me. This no, is what we're supposed no, to no, do. We'll, we'll come back to it because I think, yeah, the lady in the radiator is really important, obviously, uh based on the last shot, shot at of least. Of course, yeah. So we can come back come back to her for sure. So continuing on with this scene, um Well it's is it's it a, Okay. Is it the same? Like, is this still part so, of some kind of dream sequence well, that's happening? Okay, so or here's, is this real life? Here's how I'm interpreting it. Um, just like I mentioned, uh, the radiator is his TV screen. It's where he looks to uh, have his big ideas. Yeah. Um, and so he, we saw him in bed looking at the radiator. Yeah. And that's when he sees her for the first time, yeah. the lady in the radiator. Um, but he's alone. But he's... No, he, exactly. He's alone. And uh, it's him... I feel like this is what I do when I'm trying to fall asleep is mm-hmm. I is I think of my my big idea, the next thing that I'm working on, the next yeah. idea that I'm trying to grab, and then that lulls me into sleep. Sure. So I feel like this next sequence, everything up to basically the end of the film, yeah. uh, is a dream sequence. Okay. That's how I'm interpreting okay. it. Do you, do you agree or you have a different take? Well, no, I think it I think it has to be because we see Mary in bed next to him yeah, and she's she's not I mean, unless she's come back and this is now another night. And we flashed forward to two or three nights later, and she's returned home. Um, but this has a not really totally sure surreal. It feel does. To it, it totally it, does. Especially that, that the scene with Mary, um, she's kind of wrapped up in blankets, and mm-hmm. there's this like wet slopping sound that um, she's trapped in the blankets, and she kind of emerges from it. It, it reminded me of something amniotic, you know, yeah. where she's being born, um, and she's wet. Like you could see it as like night sweat or something, but she. And she's rubbing her eyes, and there's this awful squeaking sound. And yeah, she it, makes almost like Nido-ish sounds, yeah, in a little ways. Yeah, but it's and and chomping her teeth and stuff. Like it does seem like if that is if that is real life, then wow, Henry has like he's Terrible, really picked yeah. her. <laughs> he knows how real to pick one. them. Yeah, um, but I wouldn't be able to sleep next to no, that. exactly. And and the way you can tell it's probably not supposed to be real is I mean all that stuff could be real, and it's mm-hmm. probably just an exaggeration of. Of how it actually is with sure. her, um, but then he reaches down between them and he pulls out a sperm, right? And he tosses it against the wall, yeah. Um, and then he reaches down and there's another one. And yeah, he just keeps there's just all over. Them. There's yeah. just sperm in the bed, which yeah. I interpreted as being some kind of wet dream or something that he's had that now he has to clean up, you well, know. But I don't know if that's obviously not how it really works. So it could be just him 
having this exaggerated vision of yeah. of his life now. Well, I, or it could still be some kind of Yeah, and I found dream. the way that he well, I think it is a dream, but it's 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 expressive of his fear. Like yeah. every time Mary's going to be near him rubbing against him even if he's disgusted by her, his sperm's just going to come out yeah, and impregnate her exactly, again, right? And that's right? like his greatest fear. So he's reaching in and he's trying to get rid of these sperms yes, as quickly as possible. Exactly. And that that seems to fit with the overall film that and it fits with life too. When you're afraid of something, that thing becomes monstrously huge, right? It's the only thing you think about, even if it's if it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things. Um and anxious people feel that people who don't have anxiety disorders feel that where you know it just becomes omnipresent and i think that's what's happening you know it's it's the baby maybe doesn't look horrifically deformed in real life but to henry it does um and then this happens with his whole you know how you express how you explained it with mary and the wet dream and sperm Mm -hmm. everywhere that's just his interpretation of it because it's his biggest fear and it's now overblown to such grand proportions yeah. that the sperm are the size of his hand and he's able to pick them up and throw them at the wall yeah. um, in his desperation to yeah. prevent another pregnancy yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, No, I love that. Yeah. So, so from we there, up, we, yeah. we, yeah, we follow, uh, so there's like sperm against the wall and they've exploded and everything. Yeah. It's kind of gross. Um, and then a spotlight falls onto the case. Uh, yeah, the there, it's like a cupboard of, or something yeah. that he has on his on the side of his Where he put the bed. grub. Yeah. Yeah, so he put the grub in there and then the spotlight falls on it. The door's open. Yeah. And the grub starts dancing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it kind of, and we follow it, it retreats into the darkness and then we follow it into the darkness and all of a sudden it seems to be on the planet. Right. From uh, the very first opening scene with the, the mechanical guy and everything like that. Um, and it's going down into holes and it comes out a little bit bigger. Yeah. And Every time we see it, more. it disappears and it comes back and it's a little bit bigger. It's engorged, yeah. you know? Uh, which is interesting because if this is supposedly uh, his ideas, it it what happens at the end is interesting because it goes down uh, and it comes out and it's like a dune sandworm. Yeah, I can totally it, see yes. why someone cast him to or <laughs> asked him to do dune. Uh, and we kind of go inside of it. So if this yeah. is if this is a metaphor for ideas and, and things that are valuable to him, um, what we do when we go inside is is really important. Um, but what we get is maybe the idea is just sex because yeah. uh but you know pleasurable sex yeah because what happens when we go inside is we see it's kind of a cut uh it's obviously it feels like a bit more of a dream sequence still yeah. but it's henry in his pajamas now um picking at his clothes mm-hmm. beside uh the evolution of the arm tree at uh-huh. his at his uh bedside um and then the next sequence is him seducing or being seduced, more likely, yeah. by the next door neighbor. Right. So there's a knock at the door, and he goes to answer it, and it's pitch black in his hallway, but the his sexy neighbor kind of emerges from the blackness, mm-hmm. um, very Agent Cooper-like. Yeah. Uh, and they have a little bit of a conversation about um, where his wife is yeah. and if his wife is coming back. And his neighbor's been locked out, and she asks if she can spend the night there. And... So he lets her in. But the entire time that this is happening, he's trying to prevent her from seeing or hearing the baby. baby. He covers the baby's mouth to stop it from crying. And then when they start becoming intimate, Mm -hmm. uh, she sees the baby kind of out of the corner of her eye. And he turns her face away in order to distract her from from realizing what that thing is. And then uh, so they do end up, I think that this is 
sex happens in this hot tub on the bed. Yeah. That then <laughs> well, yeah, because the bed, it's very similar to what, uh, how he did the bed in the grandmother where right. it was like, it was, you know, it became almost a, a, a weird entity in its own. Here it's like, it's been coated, it's almost like a, a water bed, but yeah. the water is like, they're sitting in the water making yeah. out yeah. as, as the sex starts and then they sink into this yes. water. Yeah. Um, which and is, her hair floats on top. It's very, uh, it's, it's an interesting sequence. It but is. The, but the water is, is, it's milky almost. Like yeah. it has this weird milky coloring to it. Um, not quite opaque, but but it's definitely not just plain old water. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it obscures the thing that, which just I think leads more into this being obviously his bed isn't a, isn't a no. hot tub or no. anything. No. But <laughs> but it, so it's it's the surrealist bit. Um, but where they go next is I think one of the more important parts. So from here we go back into the radiator. Mm-hmm. And it is the woman. She's singing a song called... In Heaven. In Heaven. In Heaven, everything is fine. In Heaven, everything is fine. In Heaven, everything is fine. You So I think, and this is where it gets interesting for me because he's just had sex or Mm -hmm. he's having sex Mm -hmm. and he goes into heaven. Yeah. And she is the person singing about heaven. Yeah. In Um, heaven, everything is fine. Well, what's the other line? You've got your your good good things things, and I've got got mine. mine. So it's, it's very much like sex is a heavenly experience. Yeah. Right. Um, If it's the right kind of sex, I think. And that's, that's what I think there's this dichotomy between sex that is mechanical and produces progeny that produces uh, offspring. And then there's sex that is had for the sake of sex itself, which is what I think this sex is. It's, it's amorous sex. It's, it's um, affectionate sex, I guess. Or yeah. it's at least sex that's based in some, some kind of sexual attraction. Yeah. So he has his his mechanical, um, purposeful sex with Mary that produces the baby. And then he has this uh, sexy sex with the neighbor that produces nothing but a trip to heaven. Yeah. But of course it doesn't stay heavenly because he joins her on stage and she kind of beckons to him, but she, he can't reach her. Yeah. And then he ends up... Um, She's replaced by the man and the planet, which I think is yeah. is interesting because that represents, I think, the the other kind of sex. Yeah, exactly. And he takes a seat at some point um, as a, a model of that tree thing emerges from. It's pulled out onto the stage, and he takes a seat behind like a banister or something yeah. that he starts nervously twirling with his fingers yeah. as his head pops off, and the 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 baby's head emerges, emerges from, from the neck. Him. Yeah. So again, another instance of the baby being a representation of him or yeah. his worst aspects of himself. Yeah. Um, the baby, or sorry, the tree that's pulled out onto stage starts bleeding like the chicken did. Yeah. Which was kind of yeah, gross. Really gross. And then it forms this puddle on the floor in which um, Henry's head has landed. Yeah. Um, and then it sinks into this bloody puddle, much like Henry and the neighbor sank into the, the, the white water. pool. Yeah. 
his head sinks into this black pool. And we should just specify his head's obviously a prop. Yes. It's it is the eraser head. It's yes. it's where the Well, and it comes and from. it literally becomes the eraser head yeah. in this next sequence yeah. because um a child picks up the head in the streets of this Yeah, it's it's dance. it's landed in some yeah. weird uh yeah, suburban uh Not industrial suburban, urban. area, yeah, yeah. Very urban yeah, industrial yeah. area, very much like what Henry lives in himself. Yeah. And it's like a street urchin kind of yeah. thing like he's a oh, Dickensian street yeah, urchin yeah, almost, really, right? Yeah. Um, and he takes the head and he runs off to this factory and, and tries to pawn it off on the factory owner. Mm-hmm. Who, or, well, a manager or, or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they take the head and they put it through this uh, this machine and they grind it down. Well, they drill out yeah, a yes. section of it and you realize, you're like, what are they doing? They're drilling his head. And yeah. then they shove it into a thing and you realize what it is. That's when you realize it's, been, it's an eraser. because. Yeah. It's like an ice core sample that they like chop up yeah. and then they put Attach them on, it onto the onto ends the of pencils. every pencil. And then they make little um, like this guy tests the pencils. Yeah. The and pencil the eraser. Erasers, yeah. And, and he gives a thumbs up like it's all good. We're yeah. this, this is this a good, good, this good is eraser. eraser. Yeah. It's a good eraser head. Yeah. And the man presumably pays the, the kid. And uh, that's what becomes of Henry's head. Yeah. Um, and then when when the man brushes the pencil, the eraser shavings off the desk, we get that famous uh, the the dust kind of floating yeah. through the air, which comes back later in the the famous sequence that everybody remembers of Henry Spencer's head yeah, yeah. Uh, surrounded by this, this eraser, eraser dust, dust, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is very episode eight from The Return as well. I mean, he used well, yeah, a lot of these visual It might explosions. even have been the same yeah. visuals yeah, exactly. that a lot of these were being reused. Um, mm. Some people have matched them up, which is really interesting that uh, some of these older uh, works that David Lynch did he reused some of these, the these footage exact the footage yeah. in Part Eight, yeah, which is really during the atomic explosion. Um, the other, uh, just like, how do you interpret that, oh, that the head sequence? becomes the eraser head? <laughs> that that Henry's head is is an eraser. Uh, <laughs> it could be interpreted as like a, a dream, uh, like a wish fulfillment thing. Like mm-hmm. if his, if he himself and his ideas, his brain, his his. Uh, his ra- his self yeah. could become a tool of erasure if he could erase the baby. Yeah, um, I feel like that's that's kind of uh, the easiest way to look at it. Yeah, um, and especially considering where the head came from, right. it came from the baby ejecting his own self right. out his you know his brain his everything that matters to him out onto the floor and leaking into a thing. Um, it, I mean, you could interpret it as like. Okay, Henry, it's up to you to be the eraser. Right. Uh, if you want to deal with this baby that's that's taking away everything to you, it's up to you to to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, which could be how we interpret what comes later. Right. Um, that's how I kind of took it, but I mean, it's it's so surreal. I mean, the first time you watch it, you're just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on because yeah. you're like, wait, so he's an eraser now? Like what? And the first time you watched, I watched it at least. I couldn't tell where the line between the dream sequence and the real world. Well, and I think ended. that's that's important because it so aggressively erases the line between dream yeah. and reality yeah. that you can't help but but feel like you're being tugged along some demarcation that you 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 don't even know where that demarcation is, mm-hmm. and that's. Um, I keep using the word unnerving, but it's the only one that makes sense. Yeah, because it is. It's, it is it's very massively unnerving, unnerving yeah. that you have that that would be. How the, how the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a quick note on the the whole sequence with the machine and the, it's it's weird. It feels like 
it feels like a factory, but it also feels like a hotel. Maybe like there's like this lobby area that the yeah, boy runs into. It's interesting. It's odd, but then there's also uh, I love the the sound of the machines. Yeah. Again, we we talked about that a lot in this one, and he does a great job with machinery sounds. Mm-hmm. We're through to Twin Peaks and everything. Um, then machinery kind of dies, and <laughs> he gets focused <laughs> on Hollywood and stuff like that instead. Um, but uh, yeah, the, it sounds almost like like a machine gun sound. Yeah. Um, and it's just like this conveyor belt factory thing. Uh, I just, I loved it. I, I, I thought it was a really great thing because it kind of tied back to, again, this is the world that Henry lives in. And this is what, you know, in his worst nightmare, he's just fodder for a factory. Um, maybe it's a parenthood factory in his, in his interpretation, right? But it's that kind of thing that, that scares him so much. Well, yeah, it's it's that. it's mechanical again. Everything mechanical seems to be something frightening, and mm-hmm. and if it's if you're part of a machine, if you're a cog in a machine and you can't get out of it, that that's depressing. It's something that is. Um, we fight against that. We fight for individuality, and we fight for individual meaning in our lives. And if all you are is part of somebody else's machine. You can't reach individual enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and that whole idea of enlightenment is important because in the next scene, when we come back to Henry's apartment, suddenly he can see out of his window. Yeah. And I think that that is, uh, if he is the eraser head, if he is the the source of erasure mm-hmm. for the bad things that are happening in his life, it's important that that realization happens right before we get a moment of him actually being able to see out of his window because if the window now the window might be um i mean what's worse than a window you can't look out of right it, it if that represents something like a closed mind or you know the end of the line or something like that if suddenly he's able to see out that window it seems to me to be a representation of his now reaching enlightenment or having reached enlightenment or he's almost there because what he sees is not something pleasant. It's almost like it's uh, it seems like an attack. Yeah, it's happening. like someone's getting mugged or something or beat up. Right. Yeah. So uh, he doesn't seem to react to it too much because he's distracted by the sounds outside of his room, mm-hmm. which um, he eventually sees his his neighbor going into her apartment with another man. Yeah. And well, is that at this point? Yeah, it happens right after. Okay. Okay. Um. He, do, he does go to knock on her door at first, and, and there's no answer. And when he comes back... The baby starts laughing at him, which I think... jackass. Well, and it's, it's important because, I, I mean, I think this is now no longer... Um, or it might be a dream. It might be part of the dream. It, it's so hard to tell. If we're looking at it as like a sleeping dream, sure. But it, it definitely still has that element of everything being exaggerated because of Henry's fears and anxieties. Mm-hmm. Because the baby starts laughing and then, um, which is emasculating, right? He's being laughed at because his sexual conquest is being interrupted. Yeah. And then when it's really interrupted, when he he sees his neighbor going into her apartment with another man... Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, his head disappears and he it's the baby in his head staring back at the woman, um, which is, I think, just he's been reduced to this yeah. infantile state yeah. his and, and emasculated. Yeah. And I think that that is the that's the tipping point. So he reached enlightenment through this eraser head dream sequence that he has that culminates with him looking out the window He's emasculated by his child, mm-hmm. and then he takes initiative 
By killing the baby. Yeah, he does. He kills the baby. Yeah. In a really terrifying, grotesque sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, won't get into too much detail, but he basically takes some scissors. He tries, a, it looks like he's trying to cut the bandages off the well, baby. Because yeah, the, the baby, baby is yeah. just always wrapped up in these, these well, gauze bandages. All you bandages. see is his head. Yeah. It has no discernible body that we can tell um and so yeah he cuts off the bandage and exposes the innards of the baby basically because the bandages are the the, the outer body, skin yeah, there is yeah. no you know it wasn't wrapping anything that was the body yeah so in cutting off the bandages he's he's Exposed effectively it. exposed the insides of the baby so you see a heart and you see uh, what look like inner organs yeah. and and the when, baby starts wheezing and, and making this pained cry it's like yeah. you're hurting me you're hurting me yeah uh and then he hurts it more he stabs it with the in the organs uh, and cuts cuts with the scissors, and then the baby starts dying. Yeah, and it's really really grotesque. Like it starts oozing. Obviously, there's tons of blood, just like the chicken, just like the tree and everything. Yeah. Uh, but then it starts ooze, like this foam explodes yeah. out of it. Um, Henry uh, kind of cowers yeah. in the corner away from this this scene as the the innards start to become outers. outers. Yeah. <laughs> um, the baby's head elongates or the neck elongates, elongates. as it tries to like get away from it. Yeah. yeah. And then grows exponentially and becomes this giant head that is um, threatening. It's a very threatening it's staring end moment. At, it's staring at Henry. It's, With it's, the flashing lights and well, yeah, moving yeah. positions here and there. It's it's total like threatening nightmare scenario. That And if you're interpreting it as this is the baby coming to attack Henry... Or his livelihood, or his his sense of self, or whatever. I mean, that's that's exactly what that would feel like yeah. to someone in Henry's position. Yeah. This baby becomes monstrously huge, and of course, he he has to kill it. He has to end it. And this is its death throes, right? Yeah. As it as it comes at him, accusingly or um, threateningly. Yeah, yeah. And then that that sequence, it, it's really tough to watch because the baby is suddenly a, a a target even for me i was like oh i felt bad for the baby it's mm-hmm. getting murdered oh you did finally a you had some empathy for this poor thing <sighs> had no choice but to be born i know but it should have been in a lab it should not be hoisted <laughs> on on some poor father um but yeah and 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 yeah especially the shot the last one of it you know it, it kind of fluctuates between these three positions mm-hmm. of staring at at uh henry and threatening him mm-hmm. um it's it's accusatory of like you failed you failed as a father you are failing me uh this is what i would have turned into almost like i would have grown i would have become something bigger than what i was but you didn't even have the balls to look at me when and when i'm showing you this you know like henry continues to kind of look away like he won't even look at the at the baby that could have been yeah um he's it's kind of an indictment of everything against the film that's been built up so far like we're kind of in a weird way, supposed to empathize with Henry and and the way that this is making him feel. Right. Um, but then at this at the last minute, we're we're getting the the baby saying like, no, no, Look I'm still me. a living thing. Yeah. Like you need to have some moral responsibility for, um, for me as a baby and for murdering me now. Right. right. Uh, and it's it's a nice shift because at the end we get like, Henry, dude, you're just a father. You got to just deal with it. You right. know, you gave up so easily. Right. You know, she literally left for one night. Yeah. <laughs> Potentially this is all happening in one night. Right. And you've murdered the baby. Like yeah. that's your response. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. I, I really love that part of it because yeah. it, it's a moral turn on the head. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I don't know how to interpret it quite yet. I thought we could talk through this a bit because sure. the, the baby's head lunges at, at Henry and it seems to become 
the planet, but the planet then explodes yeah. and falls apart. And we see the man in the planet uh, grinding those electric gears, but there's sparks flying. And, yeah. and it seems and like seems the like whole thing is, and, yeah. yeah, the whole thing is collapsing. That whole mechanical aspect collapses and the scene turns white and mm-hmm. we get Henry finally embracing the lady in the radiator. And it seems like he's achieved um, he's happiness. Reached heaven, yeah. He's reached that heaven, which he's been searching for, which hit was impeded by the baby and Mary. Um, I'm not yeah. sure how exactly to, to read that ending. It seems like it could be a happy ending, but at the same time, it feels like what, what just came before it, like you explained, mm-hmm. you've got this, um, this indictment of Henry. Mm-hmm. And then should he be allowed to reach heaven? Because he's he's not exactly well, an upstanding person who. But if heaven is sex without consequences, right. which is basically what yeah. the the song kind of implied is yeah. that that uh, heaven is a is a great place, um, but it's not real. You can't you can't have one without the other. Right. Like here, he's he's magically destroyed the mechanics of making babies. Right. He's exploded the planets, and yeah. the guy has died. Um, the mechanic has died, <laughs> but uh, but. And he's arrived in heaven, mm-hmm. but it feels hollow because we know that's not how it's actually going to work ever. So I feel like he's he's killed the baby, he's he's escaped. Yeah. Um, but there's 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 an emptiness to that escape because yeah, it's just going to happen again. I mean, right. even when it happened with the the lady in black, he was in heaven, and then a baby still popped out of his head, right. and uh, you know, he became an eraser again. Yeah. You know, so like he can't really escape the realities of sex. Mm-hmm. Um. But he's got a brief moment here where he's happy and he's he's again, he can imagine it's just happiness and everything's perfect in heaven. Right. Um, but I felt like it was super hollow to like he was just escaping um, reality. Yeah. He, he was just he was off For into another dream. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't lasting or anything. Exactly. Like that. And the fact that it's the woman in the radiator who he's he's pictured. He, it's it's. His grub, you know, yeah. he, his grub caught the lady in the radiator singing this beautiful song yeah. about heaven. Um, and she's willing to step on sperm and she's willing to kill them. Right. She, she's um, everything positive about sex, nothing negative. Mm-hmm. But again, she's not real. Right. Right. You know, and then that's how I interpreted the ending this time. The first time I inter- I watched it, it was very different. Do you mm-hmm. want me to get into that? Yeah, definitely. So the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is an uplifting ending. This is a very <laughs> positive thing. Uh, Henry because, got his happy ending. Well, it, it's not so much Henry as uh, I, I had a different interpretation of the lady in the radiator that she was like um, growing up in acceptance. Mm, okay. Uh, and I don't know how I came to that one, but I remember thinking at the end, like, okay, he's embraced um, adulthood almost okay. in a way. Yeah. Um, and uh, the whole, I thought everything up to and including the murder of the baby was a dream sequence. Okay. So, uh, and this was the end of the dream and he was going to wake up the next day and he'd embraced, uh, you know, fatherhood basically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cause he'd been, he'd seen the horror of murdering the baby and it had okay. scared him yeah. into this. Yeah. Um, which is possible because I mean, you could still view everything up to that point as a dream sequence. Sure. I mean, chances are if you murder a baby, it's not going to explode. Right. Of and course the not. head's not going to grow 50 times of and, and attack her. So potentially that is all part of one long dream sequence and then in that case that's a potential uh reading of it but how did you interpret it sorry i've no i th- on for i think i thought it uh, i think i thought I mean, it i think you thought it that one time you think it was, uh... 
I, I did think about it the same way that you've interpreted it this time. That, yeah. that it's uh, kind of a hollow ending. It doesn't feel like it's earned. And I don't feel like Henry has learned anything. Yeah. Um, but of course the film ends there and we don't get any more. So mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to tell. You, you can just imagine whatever you want happening after that. So, um, but it does seem like in that moment he does seem happy. Which, if it's a lasting happiness, then this whole film really feels like it... If you take the interpretation that it is um, anti-parenthood or or that it represents some kind of fear of parenthood and sex um, or procreation, maybe generally, mm-hmm. um, then it really does take the... the um, it feels like it takes the stance that this is an okay thing to feel, which it is. And it, it validates the people who are afraid and who do have anxieties about becoming parents. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the, you know, the answer to that was to murder your children <laughs> yeah. in order to achieve yeah. happiness seems like a, yeah. a bad message to yeah. have. And I don't, sense. maybe we don't have to ascribe messages to David Lynch films, but, but I think if you are going to, go down that path it has to be some kind of um empty psychological state at the end Mm -hmm. because um david lynch doesn't peddle in happy endings first of all yeah and um and that just seems to make sense to have it be um ambiguous and Mm -hmm. to have it be yes he's happy but how long is that gonna last yeah seems to be a very lynching ending so i like that ending i think that 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 is as close to um uh, an ending yeah, read on it get, as yeah, we're going to yeah, get. Yeah. Um, of course, there are other interpretations. And I, I mean, I would encourage you all to go and, and look up the key to eraser head. There's some interesting mm-hmm. Shakespearean notions that um, have come out of that book. So definitely we'll throw up a link in, in the description here um, for you to go buy that. I think it's worth reading. And, and I mean, you can, people have been talking about this for 40 years now. Yeah. There's lots of different interpretations for this film. Uh this isn't this is this maybe is the most popular one. Yeah. Uh it's the one that resonated both with us and yeah. I think partly because we've decided not to have children. Yeah, exactly. And maybe that's why it frightens you so much, Aiden, because you you have said that having children gives you major anxiety. Well right? yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean I uh, the exact same thing. Like I I enjoy I really value my free time and yeah. ability to explore my own creative endeavors sure and having a baby means you can't do that in a lot of cases especially when you've got you know a nine-to-five job uh, like we both do and Mm -hmm. you know you're not gonna have a lot of free time anyways um well you do but not not like if you had another thing a living thing that you yeah then that's your other second just your second full-time job is really is being a parent and so that leaves you very very little time i mean we have all of our friends are now uh, not all of them but uh, many of them are having kids and you know, some of them are struggling with that a little bit of, yeah. you know, I used to have a life and now I have a kid instead. And uh, which isn't kids, to say well, that 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 is anathema to having a fulfilling life. Obviously, no, people have fulfilling lives with children. We're not saying that at all. But it's just to certain people, it does strike a, a, a bit of terror in your well, heart. And, right? and, and, and it's that adjustment period, I think, more than anything. Yeah. I think if you've gone from you know, being dinks like us. And then all of a sudden, you know, having the responsibility of a child and, you know, if both of you are working and, you know, you have to split that, that those domestic responsibilities equally, yeah. uh, 
that's hard on both of that's hard on everybody yeah uh and if you're staying at home parents and your other partner's not home to do all the work right. you feel like okay this is a, a lot of resentment and it's, yeah. it's really difficult because that's all falling on you uh you know that adjustment is difficult for everybody i think yeah. and some people uh, respond to it better than others mm-hmm. and i think it's just you know it's a, it's a useful conversation to have in general especially nowadays with the growing child free movement and this uh, accepting that the choice to not have children is is as valid as the choice to have children um, and that people approach it differently. So um, you just have to be aware of what you're getting into and kind of be realistic about it. Yeah. Because And that's what we've done. We've looked at this and we've said, you know what, it really isn't realistic for us. So seeing a situation where um, where someone has had parenthood kind of thrust at them with no warning the baby's already born there's nothing you can do um and then having to deal with that and grapple with that mm-hmm. i mean i think it resonated with us on that level um i think it probably resonates similarly with parents who maybe resented their children and there are a lot of parents who do resent their children at some point you know it's a sleepless well, I, night I, and your baby's crying and you can't get it to every go to parent sleep. at some point is maybe like, they oh, won't bastards. admit it but <laughs> maybe they won't admit it because it still is pretty uh stigmatized to mm-hmm. say that but there are people who who say it and uh and admit it that it's not it's not an easy job and it's not always going to be glowing yeah more oh, lights and everything's yeah perfect there's the going yeah. to be hardship so mm-hmm. your child is going to get sick and i think that's what resonates most with me is when the baby is mm-hmm. sick and there's nothing you can do to help it yeah. you know i'm a teacher and I, when i see kids that are sick i want to like completely bend the the laws of physics and the world and everything to make it better for kids that aren't even mine i don't even know these kids i didn't you know i hadn't i didn't give birth to this child and i still want to make everything better for them so i think that that frightens me that's where it it scares me i I don't worry so much about losing my freedom i worry more about not being not being up to the task of taking care of this other thing Mm -hmm. um you see the way i panic about my cats right (laughs) yeah i I have seen that many times (laughs) so i mean having a child would probably just be off the charts and i i couldn't handle it so i think that's where my anxiety comes from in the Mm -hmm. film um, and it speaks to everybody on different levels. I think yeah. uh, if you had to a married couple with uh, children giving a description of this film and, and an analysis of this film, it would be a totally different, come from a totally different place yeah. and totally different experiences. Yeah. And, and I think that, that's really valuable. Exactly. And that's what Lynch kind of likes yeah. is the fact that he produces these things and just visually and auditorily, uh, orally, <laughs> orally uh, they're they're stunning and they, they can really capture you and, and force you to think about something mm-hmm. and what that is is really up to you and what you yeah. bring to the table yeah um and and that's that's a really great gift to have to mm-hmm. to be able to produce something that that will engage someone regardless of what their thing is but or what their situation is yeah. and then if your situation is similar to his perhaps you can see a certain way of it and if it's totally different like ours like we don't have kids we don't have this actual issue but we've talked about it a lot so yeah. we bring our our own interpretation and yeah. experiences to it um, we hope that you will bring your interpretations yeah. and experiences uh, of this film to conversations that we have um, in the coming weeks. Because yeah. Or yeah, in the comments. Just yeah, say like, exactly. yeah, I watched this and I had a totally different take on it. Uh, we'd love <laughs> to hear about that because honestly, like this one struck us both as being very focused on father, very focused on this. But yeah, maybe there are other uh, ways of looking at it that, yeah. that don't focus so much on the psychological. Yeah. So that's our episode for this week, the last one of 2017. Yes. The year of peaks is now over, 
pretty much. Yeah. It's kind of sad. A little sad, but yeah. Um, so obviously this will be our last episode before the holidays, before yeah. Christmas and uh, before New Year's. We're coming back. Our first episode coming back will be January 2nd, where we will be tackling another David Lynch production, the which next, is The Elephant Man. Yes, which is what really pushed him into the, a bit more mainstream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and won him a lot of accolades, I think, yeah. because of his, his treatment of this subject, which is sensitive and, but also in a, in a strange way, very... Uh, it has its surreal moments as well. It's definitely doesn't feel like a David Lynch production, but also very much feels like a David Lynch production. And, and I've never seen this one. So yeah. So this will be really be interesting. interesting to kind of yeah. put my view of it versus your view of it. As a first time. Yeah. 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 So um, after that, we are struggling now to find the the episode of the short-lived tv series gavilan that yeah. mark frost wrote in 1982 yeah. um we may not be able to cover this in any great detail because it's been impossible for us to find mark frost even got back to us and said yeah, he doesn't even have a copy of it of the script of even. the script even yeah. so we're not even sure how we're gonna get access to that so we might not we might have to skip that one it is the next uh, chronological work but yeah it came out in 1982 yeah um but if we have to skip it we'll be moving right on to dune uh, or Hill Street Blues. Or Hill Street uh, we'll, Blues, I guess, yeah. We'll Hill be Street the... Blues is interesting because it spanned, obviously, a couple years. And yeah. we're, we're not sure exactly yet if we're going to cover the years that Mark Frost was, like, the head writer or just maybe the first couple episodes that yeah. he wrote. Or, and we're not sure how many of the episodes we're going to do because, obviously, he was the head writer for, I think, two seasons at yeah. least. Um, so He had a lot do... more input into it and, and input into the creative process, much more in line with what David Lynch was doing in in his end in film. Yeah. Uh, Mark Frost was doing on Hill Street Blues. So yeah. so so we'll 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 discuss that and maybe we'll let you know on Twitter or uh, Facebook uh, what what our plans are. For but that. for now, I think that we'll just focus on uh, the first couple of weeks coming out of uh, 2018. We'll be dealing with uh, the Elephant Man and then probably Hill Street Blues after that. And so, Dune is definitely coming up. Yeah, soon, so exactly. Yeah, so. So I guess we'll sign off here by wishing you all happy holidays, whatever yep. you celebrate. We hope it's with family and friends and lots of good food and um, yeah, have a stay great... warm if you're in the <laughs> cold northern climes. Stay or, cool yeah, if yeah. you're in the hot southern climes. And uh, definitely get back to us if you want to continue this conversation. We, we love to hear from all of you with your theories and interpretations. Um, did you like Eraserhead? Do you hate Eraserhead? Do you hate the baby? Do you hate the baby as much as Aiden does? We'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks. All one word. You can also follow us on Twitter. That's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.